Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of reconnecting with fan favorite, Dr. Roseanne Capana hodge She's previously joined me on episodes 174 and 273. She is an incredible pediatric mental health expert who utilizes both traditional and non-traditional modalities for her given patient population. Today, we reviewed relevant research specific to the net impact on mental health in teens and young adults. We spoke about resilience how to navigate nutritional choices with university-level students, avoiding disordered eating behavior patterns and how to address them, sleepovers, addressing acne, dysregulated kids with special needs, obsessive-compulsive disorders, intrinsic motivation, suicide and suicidal ideations, and the lack of stress tolerance in many children and young adults today, as well as relevant supplementation that she has found to be very helpful in her patient population. I know you will love this conversation as much as I did recording it. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Rowe. I've been really looking forward to reconnecting with you. You are a fan favorite, and I have tons and tons of questions from listeners that are interested in our teenage-focused episode. Well, thanks for having me back. You know I could talk to you all day long. I know. (laughs) (laughs) That's the fun thing is that when you record with friends, it's just an easy conversation. But there's something that you brought to my attention earlier today that I wanted to share with listeners. And for many parents, obviously, I have a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old. You have a tween and a teen. No, they're both teenagers now, Cynthia. 13 and 18. Oh, so you understand. You've got two teenagers yourself. You know, for me, thinking about the impact of the pandemic on my children and not just my children, but everyone's children. And the article that you shared with me was specific to what brain scans have revealed during the pandemic, the impact on teenagers' mental health. And I'm going to kind of synopsize this and I'll let you kind of address it because obviously you are in the thick of it. You see the net impact on your patients. It's saying the adolescent brain is still developing and vulnerable to external and internal factors. This is Elizabeth Powell, who's the program officer of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. The abstracts in this group show that major stressors in teenage lives, including those associated with the pandemic and mood disorders, may have significant effects on the way their brains are structured and organized with potential implications for their mental health. And I want to just tie into the fact, and we'll talk about what specifically they found But it's not just your children, my children, it's every listener here that is part of the everyday wellness community probably has a very unique perspective on the net impact of what that time period of everything kind of getting very quiet and families being home together. And especially with, you know, what I would describe my kids were a teen and a tween, but for them, the net impact of not being able to socialize with their friends, not being able to be around their friends. I think it's had a significant and large impact on their emotional and mental growth. And so for you as a mental health specialist, clinical psychologist, 
What have been some of the broad-based changes that you saw in your patient population during and after the pandemic? Well, you know, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about this study too, but I think what I have seen in general, and I think that, you know, I know this is going on across the globe, is there has just been a real increase in mental health issues in general, but also I feel like mental health issues have become increasingly complex that, you know, people have anxiety, depression, and OCD. They have ADD and OCD, you know, and there feels like a lot. That is a definite. We know the numbers of mental health, the the issues have increased, uh, suicidal ideation, planning, attempts have increased. And also what I can tell you, and you know, you and I talk about this all the time, is I feel a hum of just unbelievable anxiety in parents. And, you know, we have this message, and I talk about this quite a bit, that we think if our kids are doing okay in school, grade-wise, that there really can't just be sort of a hot mess in the inside. And that's not true. And I know a lot of your questions, um, some of the, your listeners put in questions, and thank you, um, were about what happens at college, what happens later, because they're seeing the level of distress, right? And college, just so everybody knows, the number one reason why a student leaves college is mental health. And 40% of college kids leave freshman year. Not all of that is mental health. Sometimes it's a transfer, not to freak you out. And I think sometimes parents don't really think about, you know, all those little signs. They don't put it together until they're on their own and until they're facing, let's face it, a huge college bill. They start thinking, wait a second, is this the right time? Should I do it? And a lot of parents, you know, sort of ignore the signs, not that you're doing anything wrong, but nobody's saying the young adult this person at school, like, hey, I'm really worried. So they think, okay, well, you know what? Going to college will sort of sort it out. Well, I can tell you this, if you're on your own and you don't have good support systems and you're at college, the outcomes are not good. That is why kids leave. And there's nothing wrong with a kid leaving if they're getting help, right? And what we also know is that People did try to seek help during the pandemic. You can't always get help. But we also know that a lot of people are not getting help. So 70% of people diagnosed with depression, teens, are not getting consistent help. 70%. So right there, that's going to take away income levels. That's going to take away gender disparity. That means you're just not getting help. Certainly, we know that in minority populations, Certain populations in general don't get as much help, but there's a lot to unpack there. But ultimately, really to answer your question, there has been a big increase in mental health issues in general, psychiatric medications. And we know through the Stress in America survey by the American Psychological Association, a massive increase in parent stress. Uh, I mean, it's not surprising to hear that, but... I feel like, you know, during the pandemic, because there's no one listening that has ever been through that before. You know, we were all as a nation, as a world in this massive shutdown. And I always try to find the reframe of my kids and say that we had a whole year of togetherness. You know, it was just the four of us. We had sold a house. We were living in a rental. We're living in a different neighborhood. That was not a a fun time, Cynthia, just so you know, remember? No, it was. Living in that rental. And I was writing a book, which I don't recommend that you have all those things on your plate at the same time. But what's interesting is when I think back to the pandemic overall, 
there was so much bonding. Like when's the last time my kids took Legos out? When's the last time my kids took puzzles out? When's the last time we played board games as a family? Because let's be honest, there wasn't a whole lot you could do other than, you know, go to school, go to work and hang out together, walk the dogs, connect over Zoom, connect by a phone, you know, by a cell phone. And so you just get to a point where you can only saturate yourself with so much binging of Hulu, Netflix, Amazon Prime, (laughs) whatever it is that you do and exercise for that matter. So I, I think on a lot of different levels that we were all doing our very best, but I think for so many people, and certainly my oldest was impacted by the pandemic. That was his eighth grade year, missed eighth grade graduation, which yes, in the part of the country I was in, eighth grade is a big deal. They do it up. They have a graduation ceremony, an eighth grade dance. He missed all of that and started high school from his bedroom. And I know that there are thousands and thousands of people that they have similar stories. They had younger children, they had older kids, they had kids in college, people who missed all these milestones. And so on a lot of different levels, there's a degree of grieving. Like I think we as parents feel badly for our kids because they had this arrested development, you know, this period of time where they weren't able to do the fun things they should be celebrating and enjoying. And so I'm so grateful that I have you here today to talk about many of these things. And There's a a question that came in from Meg saying, my teenage daughter and my adult son have suffered from social anxiety. Going to places that are crowded makes them uncomfortable. My daughter gets sweaty palms. My son rarely left the house other than school or work. What do you suggest to help them get more comfortable in uncomfortable situations? Yeah. Well, let's, you know, I'm going to start with the end of her question and then go back because learning how to tolerate uncomfortableness is the definition of resilience. And when we talk about, there are questions here about, you know, what's the magic in mental health? That is the magic, right? So we have become like a bubble wrap society where we want our kids to never experience anything uncomfortable. You know, I recently, you know, if you follow me on my podcast, I talk a lot about my kids, but my youngest JC is, was a severe dyslexic. I mean, severe. And he only had dyslexia and reading instruction. We never put him in a public school. We did it ourselves. You know, at a certain point, about two years in, where he was getting it between five and seven times a week, I thought, is this damn kid ever going to read? But he did. And he's a totally normal reader. And he has the gift of a dyslexic brain. And, you know, the number one common characteristic of millionaires, dyslexia, 40% of U.S. businesses owned by dyslexics, very creative mind. And so we recently, he get, we worked to try to skip a grade because he's a science phenom in math. And, you know, we were kind of on the fence. I'm not so, so sure he was ready. And we said, listen, you're probably going to get a C when you, we use the summer to skip a grade. And now he's two years ahead in math. This is his choice. I'm not one of those mothers. Okay. So I was like, look, you can kind of struggle and probably get a C or you could coast and get an A and you're still a year ahead. And he was like, yeah, let's let's get a C, (laughs) you know, right? (laughs) And I was like, it doesn't mean you are, but I said, I'm predicting you're going to get some D's and F's. And he's like, what's a D? You know, (laughs) but he is uncomfortable. He's uncomfortable and I can see it. And I'm not, you know, I'm like, we're pushing ahead. This is what we're doing. And it's a good lesson. And the poor kid's been used to being uncomfortable, but it doesn't mean you make everything hard. It means that we 
have to teach our kids there's going to be moments of uncomfortableness. Um, Anxiety and anger can't be the only two emotions you ever experience. There's a range of emotions. And what are those tools and resources to get through them, right? That is what our job is as parents. And so we have this beautiful opportunity with our children to coach them in those 18 years through this and also to model for them how we manage stress, never hiding that there are stressful periods, but showing them how we do it. So that's a little lesson from Dr. Rowe that I think is just not, we're not hearing this as much. And please know your kids watch everything you do, not saying they don't listen to you, but they're going to 10x pulling information from you when just by observing how you're doing things. I mean, it's just the way. So to answer this question, let's talk about social anxiety. So first of all, social anxiety is the fifth most common mental health issue in America. It is not shyness, right? And if anybody doesn't know, uh, Cynthia, she's an introvert. (laughs) Very much so. People are always shocked when they hear me say that. And so this is when you talk about resiliency and getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, that's one of the reasons why I did student government and why I ran for office in college and why I did all these things because it forced me to get outside my comfort zone. And that's where growth and potential happens. A hundred percent. It does. Absolutely. Right. I'm on the other end. I'm the extrovert. I'm like, I have to learn how to be an introvert and be quiet sometimes. Right. And it's almost uncomfortable for me to be quiet. You know, I'm like, okay, you know, I'm used to, you know, me, you like me, you like when I come with you because I schmooze everybody and we have a good time. (laughs) (laughs) We balance each other out. We balance each other out. Absolutely. And so shyness and social anxiety are very different. And social anxiety truly is a clinical issue. So how do you help your kid be more comfortable socially? Really, they require therapy, right? And my magic is calming the brain, coming in with therapeutic support in some way, shape, or form. It's just so much easier when we calm the brain. And no, I don't mean meds, right? So, you know, what do I mean? So it's always the balance. The base of all health is nutrition. So you do what you can with nutrition. We can talk about that. You can use meditation. You can use yoga. You can do breath work. You can do neurofeedback and do PMF. Of course, you can do supplements like inositol and magnesium. You know, there's a lot of good things we can do, always evidence-based, but you must do them consistently. I don't want to hear you. Don't message me if you haven't done it for a month, right? So (laughs) it's not one and done. Even though the number one quickest thing we can do to calm our nervous system, breath work. It's the fastest way we can calm our nervous system. But that child, that young adult, you know, I think it's both her kids, right? We have to help them. Doesn't mean that they are going to be the head of the student council, right? But you have to help them gain social skills in some way, shape, or form that is right for them, right? So I literally could go anywhere and I'm going to be fine, right? I'm not asking you to do that, right? But what can you do? Because guess what? You're going to have to go to college. You're going to get a job. You need those skills. And you you don't want it to bubble over. I mean, untreated anxiety pretty much always leads to depression at a certain point. And then there becomes the layer. So calm that nervous system, get them the skills, that really is sounds easy, but it's not, but it's worth that effort. Yeah. And I, I would imagine that there are parents who are listening right now or listening later in, in our discussion. How do they go about finding qualified 
providers, because it's my understanding from talking to my traditional allopathic trained friends, there aren't enough mental health professionals. And this is unfortunate. How do we go about finding qualified individuals to work with our children, our teens, our young adults? Because I would imagine that this in and of itself is its own specialty. Like there are people who do better with grown-up adults, and then there are people who are really patient and very attuned to children, teens, and young adults. And I would imagine in and of itself, that is very much a very specific focus. Yeah. So great point. So what you want to do is find somebody who has an expertise in that specific problem. So in social anxiety, you want to say, have you worked with people, young adults? teenagers, because an adult therapist, man, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to talk. I was, you know, driving in the soccer carpool the other day and the kids were like, oh, you don't know this rapper. I said, yeah, let me hear his name. I'll tell you who he is. And they were like, <laughs> oh, she knows who he is. I was like, I got to stay current kids. I work mm-hmm. with teenagers, you know, <laughs> plus I love music, but I was like, I at least want to know who, who it is. So, you know, you, I joke, but I don't because teenagers need to know that you're relatable in some way, shape or form. And that just requires that you're putting that effort in. So do they have a specialty? Where are you going to find them? So number one, start with somebody you trust. If you have a friend who's had a kid with problems, ask them. And if they've had a great experience with a local provider, do that. If you can't do that, ask a medical professional. And certainly you can do a Google search. I mean, people come to me all the time from all over the world in a Google search. And you want to make sure they're licensed, credentialed. You don't want to go to somebody who is a mental health coach. You want to make sure they are properly credentialed. Is a mental health coach great for things like parenting or mindset? Great, sure. But when it comes to a clinical issue, you really got to know what you're doing. And, and there's so much work that you have to do, not just to get that degree, but to get that license and making sure that's where the results come from. I have a whole podcast on why expert care is you know, important because it's just a very different experience when you go to an expert, you know, non-comparable, really. So there are great providers in the world. You just have to look for them. Yeah, and I think once you meet with them, are they the right fit? You know, that's important too. If your child can't relate to that person and it's truly an issue of relating, not treatment refusal, then find another person. But I do, you know, I think one of the questions it has to, you know, do with, you know, how, you know, what do I do with a kid? How do I talk to him about it? How do I get them for help? So one, conversations are never one and done. You have open conversations about mental health. You never make it negative. You really just try to make it a positive thing. Never hide clinical diagnoses from kids. It's often a relief when they're like, yeah, I knew I was depressed, you know? And then really talk to them and be part of that therapy if you can. I mean, really, if you are the parent, you're doing the heavy lifting because one therapy session a week isn't going to move the dial if you're not implementing those things at home. And you can. I want you to be empowered, not scared by that. It's going to teach you to get in alignment and use the right words instead of you know, being like, what am I doing? Spaghetti on the wall. That's what a therapist is for. They're there to guide you and your child. That's such an important point and certainly really helpful because I I would imagine there are going to be parents that are going to listen to this and they're going to say, I know that my child needs help, but I don't know where to start. So thank you so much for that. Suzanne asked, 
How do you think universities should best support nutrition on campus? And what do you feel is missing most to allow all students in caps, including those with food intolerances to have a level academic playing field for best success? Great yeah. question. Suzanne, I've helped so many kids pick colleges and, you know, so many of the students that I work with have food intolerances, have celiac, have medical conditions that prevent them from, you know, that we have to get their inflammation down. And it's hard to find really good nutrition at schools. Do I see a trend in the last few years where things are improving, that they have these apps now where students can order food? I think all schools have to just, just like restaurants, have to acknowledge that you got to have a little gluten-free symbol. You have to have options. And we know that food quality is a big, big determining factor in health. And yet, you know, there are many campuses, like I had somebody this summer and they're like, the primary food method of cooking is frying. And I'm like, really? Like everything is fried, you know? And then in, in the same breath, I have, you know, another student who goes to one of the top food schools, always in the top 10 here. They have a sushi bar, they have this, they have that. And I was like, I couldn't even imagine that. It's so great. So what do I think universities need to do is I think they need to provide better food options for all students, right? You know, and also to bring taste to those foods. Like you can't just have grilled chicken. So a lot of my kids who have food intolerances, they literally have to have the same food choices every day. Like I can't live like that. You know, that gets boring. So in one sense, you're providing safe safe options, but they have to do a better job with taste. And and I think just like when people come to my house, they're surprised that everything's gluten and dairy-free because it's just so darn good. It's just a matter of proper spicing and having some variety. Yeah. And it's interesting. I have a, my 18-year-old will be going to college in 2024. And you better believe, especially because I'm the mom of all boys, mm-hmm. When we're doing college tours, he's very attuned to the food options. He has peanut and tree nut allergies. So that is a huge, and he has real allergies. They're not going to go away. Unfortunately, only 30% of kids that are diagnosed with a food allergy will actually quote unquote outgrow it. And in talking to him, you know, one university in particular is always in the top five for food options. And it's amazing how some universities just have an overwhelming amount of choices Unfortunately, that's not consistent. And so I completely understand what I hear what you're saying. And I also understand what Suzanne is saying is that, you know, what do these kids do? So obviously for us, we have to make sure wherever he ends up attending that they're going to have safety parameters around contamination with nuts and peanuts. A lot of investigating. My friend Ellen was like, she guides me in all things. Um, Her kids are older than me. They're adults and my kids, I should say. And uh, she was like, bro. You got to check with the feeding the kids and how often they're cleaning the bathrooms. I was like, Ellen, I would never think of that, but it's true, you know? So I think, you know, that's really the answer is what you have to do your investigating work before you get there. Yeah. And I would really even say, like, I would go to those dining halls and taste the food because sometimes things have been promised. And again, that quality isn't there. Certainly another option is for kids to get, um, I've had kids get special rooms where they have access to cooking and they just cook themselves. That's not as typical. You've got to be a really pretty self-sufficient kid who really knows how to cook. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Both my boys were at a university this summer for a program and one came home and said, oh, I'm going to definitely gain 15 pounds because I couldn't believe how much food was available whenever we wanted it as much as we wanted of it. And the other one came home and said, I miss our home cooking. So Mm. they were at the same university, but their perceptions were completely different. Along this line, Jen asked, how do you recommend talking to a 14-year-old girl about avoiding gluten and dairy as needed due to severe intolerances without creating disordered eating behaviors? Now, I know you and I have had some conversations around this. Obviously, it's it's a very kind of sticky subject because you don't want to then imprint your child with being overtly concerned and becoming orthorexic, anorexic, binge eating, food addiction, et cetera. How do you typically address those kinds of concerns? Well, you're right. You have to tread carefully, right? And especially if this is new at 14, right? If this has always been going on, it's different because there's a foundation, there's a trust, there's an understanding. I'm not saying these are not, you know, tricky to navigate in either scenario, but let's say that's new, right? Number one is you've got to do this as a family. I think the greatest mistake people make is they make it for the just the one kid and they're already feeling so bad about it. And you know, you're listening to this podcast, you know, this is the way for better health, brain health. I mean, when I do my brain scans and people are eating, you know, their intermittent fasters or paleo, their keto, you can't believe the difference in their brains of any age. The inflammation is not there in the same way, if at all. The stress levels, the even just the neuroplasticity, the flexibility of the brain is incomparable regardless of age. I can get a 70-year-old who's eating super, super clean and a 14-year-old that's eating chicken nuggets, and that 70-year-old brain is going to be way easier to train. And, you know, I never try, I only get to tell that to my good eaters because everyone else feels bad. But you want to start with your whole family, really, you know, getting rid of the stuff. You're all going to feel better. It's going to be easier. You're not going to be locking horns as much. And then, you know, you psychoeducate. Like I slip in like nutrient facts. I also really try to get my kids to connect how they feel when they eat. So like, wow, how do you feel? You know, I made a baked berry compote thing with almond flour and butter in it last week. And my kids were like, this is so good. You know? And I was like, it is, there was nothing terrible in there. You know, it was just baked fruit as a dessert. And, you know, I was like, oh, do you like it better than did it? And they're like, oh no, this is way better. I'd rather have this than the gluten-free, you know, whatever it was. And so you just get them to connect. And obviously you want to validate feelings. If your 14 year old is angry, they can't eat certain things. Be like, yeah, me too. God, I'd love to have a Cinnabon, you know, and it not affect me, you know, whatever it is, but it does, you know, and, and things like that. So, I mean, my kids have been drinking the Kool-Aid long enough where they're, they get it, (laughs) (laughs) but it's real, it is hard. And I've had some real, and the other thing is sometimes having another person talk to them is huge. So you have to be very careful. If you find a traditional clinical nutritionist, a lot of times they're not down with super healthy eating. They're like, oh, you can have a little bit of everything. Really? Heart healthy grains. If you hear that run, you know, (laughs) but you can find an integrative health coach. You can find, you know, somebody, I certainly have had many conversations with kids and families. And sometimes I even do like, Hey, could you do me a favor? Could we do it for like three months and we'll do a pre and post uh, brain map? You know, like it really depends on where people are at. 
You know, I met with a young man this week and we, you know, he had to give up stuff and we based it on his stomach hurting. And he was like a month later, he's like, my stomach's not hurting. And I was like, well, what do you think? He's like, well, I guess I have to stick on the gluten free. And I was like, yeah, I was like, you look great too. And he's like, I feel a lot better. So he was, you know, 20 years old. So, and he was not too happy with me when I told him we had to be gluten-free. He said he's done it before and it did nothing. Well, so it's, it's hard, you know, especially at that age, because I feel like teenagers and young adults, they feel like they're missing out. And I'll share with it with my community that my youngest, who's 16, has been struggling with, you know, pimples and like very mild acne. And, you know, we've been bringing him to a local holistic person and she's been reinforcing, you really should go gluten and dairy free. And he has just dug his heels in the ground. And I said, I can't force him to do it. And something over the summer, it was like a light bulb went off for him. And he said, I'm willing to go dairy free. Do you know that that kid's skin looks completely different? And so he tried probably two weeks ago to have a little bit of, I think he had whey protein and he had a bunch of breakouts and he said, I don't tolerate dairy. And so he and I are, are dairy-free buddies. I keep saying to him, like, I will do everything I can to find healthy alternatives for you if you really feel like you're missing something. And in most instances, with the exception of ice cream, he doesn't miss it at all. But his skin has gotten so much better. And I never pushed him. I just said, you're going to come to this decision when you're ready. And now that he's ready, the dermatologist, the anesthetician are like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe the difference in his skin. We were actually looking at photos that they had taken and he's so proud of himself now. And he just said, it just reinforces, I want to have clear skin and I'm not willing to go back to having a face full of pimples. And so for him, dairy is very inflammatory, very anemic. Right. He's in the midst of puberty. So spiking insulin for him is going to drive the acne issues. And so I just share that so that our community knows you know, as a parent, I had to kind of wait till he was really ready to do it. Because if I pushed him to do it before he was ready, if any of you have a stubborn teenager, you understand yeah. it's like trying to push a mule. And so I love him to pieces. And I'm so proud of him because he came to this all on his own. He was really ready to just be done with these skin problems. So well, and you handled it beautifully. You're like, okay, well, you can have the skin problems or you can get rid of dairy and not. So it's really up to you and you let him, you know, decide, right? And, you know, skin, you know, is our largest organ mm -hmm. and, you know, so much toxins want to come out through that. And for him, it was created a toxicity. Who knows? Maybe there's candida in there. It could have caused a lot of different components for it. Yeah. When you talk about a brain scan, can you explain the technology that you're using in your practice? Because I'm sure people are probably curious. They're I probably they're thinking like CAT scans, MRIs, but this is different. Yeah. So I do something called a QEEG brain map. And sometimes people come to me and just do diagnostics with me. They come in, you know, it's this process where it's a lovely non-invasive process. I can do it as somebody young as three and a half to whatever age. And I do it all the time. So you put a cap on, it measures surface electrical activity at 19 sites. And what happens is we take this data and it's no big deal. It's this cap. The worst part of it is like you get this gel in your hair and it's kind of gross, but that's it, right? You know, when you're there, it's like 10 minutes, no nuclear medicine or anything. So the data, we take it, we analyze the data, we put it in a database and you're compared against males and females with and without clinical issues around your age, right? And so I am sort of like a savant with these brain maps. I'm not gonna, 
I'm not shy either about, but, and I look at a brain map and literally you can just see so much in a brain map. So you can see what areas are underworking and overworking that will tell you, oh, this is overworking in brain communication that's associated with anxiety. Oh, look, there's OCD. I have done over 10,000 of these. I stopped counting at 10,000 and I can see certain nutrient deficiencies. I can see what your gut health is like. I can see permeability in the gut and that's all based on patterns. So we know exactly what the brain can and can't do. When you see certain patterns together, you're like, wow, that's a head injury. Oh, that's a birth trauma. You know, I freaked people out at times just by doing this brain map. And you're really able to get not just accurate diagnostic information, but really my specialty is to say, this is what you should do. And these are the kind of treatments that will help you based on your brain profile. I have 100% accuracy if I see Lyme disease or tick-borne illness. And how do I know it's 100%? Because I send you to a physician and you go and get tested. So, you know, that's the kind of information you can get out of a brain map. It's great. And people, half the time people come to me, they have the wrong diagnosis. And I would say that's conservative. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I know that, you know, being friends with you, you've talked about this a lot, but this is really the first time we've discussed it on the podcast. So I was like, I'm going to let you describe it in more explicit detail than I could. Next question is from Nicole. I have a 15 year old daughter who has no interest in sleepover at friends houses. She tells me it makes her anxious to be away overnight and she wants to sleep in her own bed. She has scoliosis and wears a brace 23 hours a day. And this contributes to wanting to be in the comfort of her own bed. She has a a desire to get past this, but it gives her so much anxiety. As a parent, I want her to grow beyond this anxiety, but wonder how imperative sleepovers actually are. I worry about whether this will make college a tougher transition. Any advice would be appreciated. You're seeing common themes that are kind of weaving through these questions. So let's talk about girls and sleepovers. Kind of a big deal socially. Right. So I understand that. And I've, this is not the first time, like I've actually had people come to me to help their kids do sleepovers only when the kid wants to do it, not going to force anybody to do anything. So we have to honor your daughter, right? So we now know she has scoliosis. The brace is very uncomfortable. It really, really is. I, you know, my friend Ellen, she had scoliosis. My, my JC had a touch of scoliosis. We were able to do the exercises So I would say, is this really a priority for your daughter? Because if it is, then it's something we should work towards. If it's not, I think it's okay for her to say, I want to be in my own bed. I'm uncomfortable. Um, Maybe she doesn't want people to see her in the brace. There could be a lot underneath it. I think the larger thing is let's look back, right? Let's take an aerial view. And is this anxiety showing up anywhere else? If it's just showing up here, that's okay. We have to honor our kids when they don't want to do certain things. But if it's showing up in a lot of other ways, she might need some some counseling support around this diagnosis and how it affects her. Because, you know, we hear scoliosis and we kind of push it to the side. It's sort of a big deal. And, you know, she's going to be wearing that brace until she stops growing. Yeah, I think it's such a good question because... I have one kid who loves spending the night out and the other one who really never has. He enjoyed having people at our house pre-pandemic. But I think it's, to your point, 
like honoring our kids. Like I have one kid who always wants to sleep at home. He prefers his bed. He doesn't want to sleep on someone's couch or floor or in a sleeping bag. And the other one could care less. So I think so much of it's just honoring our kids as individuals, figuring out if she really has a desire to be doing sleepovers. That's a separate issue from just definitely, hey, I just want to be at home and sleep in my own bed, which I think all of us can respect. Next question is from Ashley. Hi, I like your huge following. I'm a huge fan. Thank you for your work and bringing this to the teen community. I have two teens and one tween. Any advice on acne? I have one who weathered it, one on Accutane and the one coming up the pipeline. Well, I mean, I think we kind of discussed that, but I think ultimately, you know, what are big factors in acne, right? What you're eating, your stress levels and proper detoxification, and they all can be related, (laughs) So, you know, getting a good, healthy diet, keeping your blood sugar stable, you know, and also making sure, I mean, you know, most acne isn't because kids are, you know, taking good care of their skin. It's really about what they're putting in their body and it's showing up in their skin. So good detoxification processes and practices. I think a lot of times we don't think about that for our kids, but they need to get a good sweat in every day. The point of sweat is about seven to eight minutes in. So, you know, aim for 20 minutes and, you know, lots of water, water with lemon, never put water with lemon in anything, but you know, a glass, ceramic or metal cup, never plastic and, you know, use other things to help them, you know, detoxify tends to turn around. Now you can also look for things like I mentioned yeast. There could be other things lurking within the system and you're only going to find help for that with a holistic integrative practitioner. You're wasting your time going to a regular doctor. They're just not going to think that it's in your organs. And, you know, that's really the way and and getting your kid to buy into the healthy eating. And really just like what Cynthia said, like, wow, take a look at your skin. What are you doing differently? You know, because when they go off the wagon, whether it's, you know, gastrointestinal, whatever symptom they have, you want them to make that connection so they make the choices for themselves. That's such a good point. And it's interesting because my, my 16 year old, my stubbornly wonderful child that he is when he was ready to make that elimination he was but to his credit he found that for him his way of dealing with stress because he goes to a magnet high school that's like college i mean i'm not exaggerating his workload is insane but he loves it he's very happy he's thriving there he goes to the gym five days a week he's very specific about what he eats what he's doing around the gym gets his exercise on. He's a much more pleasant person. So don't discount that element of stress for our kids. I think a lot of them internalize it. And, you know, for me, it's been interesting to kind of watch this transition for him over the last year. But I love that you brought up the detox portion because that's equally important. And the other thing that I would kind of echo is there are so many functionally and integrative medicine individuals that, you know, you could work concurrently with your pediatrician to make sure that there's not something else going on with your child. And then there are lots of very well-trained individuals who can do stool testing, that can do food sensitivity testing. And concurrently, when you're working with an allopathic trained provider, I mean, they do exist. They are out there. I have several on my team and they really do a great job, you know, looking at those nuances. You mentioned candida, dysbiosis, latent infections, all the things that can really manifest in what's going on in the skin. Next question, what recommendations would you give to a mom of three 
children to an elementary school who have special needs when it comes to managing behaviors at school and at home. I feel like we've tried everything. My husband works a lot and I work full time. So I feel like we end up using screen time too much. And that makes the school day far more challenging. I feel like I'm constantly being called or pulled into meetings. And I also have a five month old. So this mom is exhausted. Oh, like she needs help. Yeah. I wish I had an easy thing for you, girl. So, I mean, other than sending you a lot of mom love, but I think, you know, when kids are dysregulated, right, we have to understand why they're dysregulated because that's what you're talking about. If your kid's having behavioral issues at school, behavioral issues at home, you know, number one, put your own oxygen mask on. You got a five-year-old, give yourself some grace, but, you know, what can you do even small amounts of the day to, you know, maybe improve your sleep or just tighten up what you're eating just to get yourself, give yourself a basis that's easier to work from. Because if you're, you know, stress, sleep, diet are off, you're just not going to show up in the best way. And of course, your stress levels are going to be high. You have special needs kids and a baby, you know, <laughs> so do what you can right there. But then think about when you have kids with behavioral issues, you know, what's your structure? What's your routine? What do you have in place to increase learning? Because structure and routine help kids who learn differently, who need a minimum of 3x the amount of repetition. So it takes 34 times to do something where you learn it at an innate level without thinking at, about it. If you have any kind of issue interfering with learning, it's three times that. So let's just say it's 100 plus. So that's why us special needs parents are tired because we're repeating ourselves. But when we put the scaffolding in, they're better off. They're able to learn quicker. And then, you know, really also I find as a special needs parent, 80% of the parents do get divorced. And I'm going to say that, and you're not, we're not saying that, but 80% of the parents who come to me are not viewing their child's issue and how it's treated the same. And most of my work is in joining the parents. So whatever you can do to get dad to see the problem in the same way, you know, a lot of parents you know, have an aha moment on one of my episodes or one of my blogs, and they send it to the dad, you know, going to a therapist, doing something to align with it. And if your kid's really struggling in school and you need to have help, you need to get an advocate, somebody that can help. And, and ultimately, you know, kids that are special needs, their brains can learn. They need more support in regulating their nervous system. That's why the diet is even more important. And then tools like I use, like, neurofeedback and PEMF. I mean, they can just be game changers, but you don't have to go down the medication road. And I, in fact, find, you know, and I'm always very transparent. That's the people that seek me out. I find that it often doesn't help and can worsen things. You got to go back to those basics in order to help your kids really learn. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Because I, you know, one thing that my admin, Jamie, for everyone that emails the podcast, Jamie is my amazing executive admin. And she was saying there were so many common themes of parents needing and asking for support. And so obviously, it's easy to have Dr. Rowe come back, you know, keep the questions coming. We actually have a few more questions that I want to try to tackle. Next, this is another anonymous question. My son has what appears to be OCD, but he's only three. Is it possible for kids to show signs of something like this, but then quote unquote, grow out of it? 
Or are there things I can do to help him manage these behaviors without having to see a professional? I think it's related to social anxiety, but we try to get him out of the house, interact with other kids at least a couple times a week. So yes, OCD can show up as young as three, right? And no, you don't want to wait getting help. So it's super ridiculously important. I mean, OCD is one of the most treatment resistant conditions because it forms a habit in the brain and it's, oh, just puts a lock on the brain and the brain gets reinforced for either avoiding certain things or, you know, the questions that ask, rituals, all that, it gets reinforced. So it's just much more likely to occur. And at this young, you could squash it pretty easily with the support of a licensed mental health professional who does a type of therapy called ERP, which is exposure response and prevention. It's a combination of cognitive behavioral. Yeah. Even a three-year-old, we've got to challenge those cognitions and the behaviors with exposures. And a good ERP therapist is going to show you how to manage those behaviors, how to avoid things. Because most parents don't realize when your kid has obsessions and compulsions, they're actually involving you and you're accidentally reinforcing it. So I, you know, there's a lot that can be done. I highly doubt with a three-year-old, you're going to need to go to therapy for a million years, but you will not regret getting help. And that's the same statement I would make for anybody at any age with OCD. Like it is so powerful. All the evidence shows you that that's the sort of the gold standard in treating OCD. And please know that OCD should be treated by an OCD expert, not an anxiety expert. Anxiety and OCD are not the same. And if you treat it like anxiety, you can accidentally reinforce it and make it worse. Now, I will just add something personally. I'm not given permission to disclose the individual within my family network that has OCD, but it is really important to make sure you work with someone that specifically works with OCD patients and their families. And more often than not, OCD kiddos, they reinforce the habits that they need to have reinforced to, you know, continue with the behavior. Like parents don't realize that their own behavioral patterns are reinforcing their child's OCD. And I say it's this so like sneaky, in the most right? loving way possible. And so part of addressing OCD in children, teens, tweens, young adults is reprogramming parents. It's amazing. A hundred percent. And, you know, and, and when they start to make the connections of the sneaky OCD behaviors and how they've accidentally reinforced it, they're like, oh, gosh. but, you know, in the same breath, I'm all about parent empowerment. Once you know, you know, and you can do something different and it you won't spin your wheels in the same way. You can just squash that OCD. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Next question is from Jen. How do you recommend encouraging a 16-year-old high school junior to get good grades, test scores, and extracurricular without obsessing or having them tune you out? Oh, it's so hard. <laughs> and you know, I am such an alternative educator in my own, you know, I have one child that's homeschooled, another we go to a Montessori school, and it's uh, the he's in the middle school part, and it's only Montessori infused, right? Cynthia's got her one kid in high level charter, another in a public school. So we kind of hit all the tick all the boxes on, on parenting. And, you know, I think 
it's about balance. And I don't have the exact right answer because I think every family is different. So one, the best way to do things in your family is to model how you manage stress well, not perfectly, but even when you're imperfect to be like, well, I could have handled that better, you know, like, and just to talk about it because we don't want our kids to get the message that there's only one route perfection. And that is the message kids are getting today. So I don't know from this question, if you're somebody who wants your kid to do better or you want to know how to support them and maybe you're a little more chill. And I think I've had all kinds of parents, right? Many years ago, my mother's helper, my former intern, she's a Yale doctor now. And her mom, Claire, and I've been friends for like over 20 something years. And Claire and I are super chill kind of parents. And we're like, where did she come from? She's so intense. She's got to be in the top, you know, whatever she's in, you know, I think she was number three in her class. And, you know, and she just struggled with getting everything right, internalizing it. And we used to be like, honey, you're going to get anxious. You're going to get anxious. And that's certainly what happened. And we taught her how to use heart math and she wound up turning around. So I think the message here is that in order to power up the brain, you have to power down. So you have to help your child to regulate. So whether that's things like you're going to yoga three times a week together, you're doing, and the brain needs 10 or more minutes a day of some calm, relaxing activity in order to reset itself. Yes, sleep is very important and and a lot happens in sleep, but you need to be intentful about what you're doing. So maybe you're doing some heart math. Maybe you're doing meditation. I don't know what it is, but I think that is how you help your child to be more regulated so they can achieve at a higher level, but it not even just achieving at a higher level, but doing it in a way where they can recognize where something feels off. Because if you're only in a rev state, that's all you can feel. In terms of motivation, you know, that is the something people come to me a lot about. And I think why kids struggle with motivation in general, it could be that there's an underlying clinical issue. Maybe the task that they're having them do isn't something they really want to do. And they're just making, you know, going through the motions. Maybe they're missing a passion in their life too. I feel like a lot of times kids are just like driven to the academics. And so rarely do I have a kid who's really you know, certain about what they want to do in their future in a way that aligns with who they are. Like whenever I tell people that JC like decided in fifth grade, he was getting his PhD in engineering, you know, I had the robotics guy come to me and he was like, don't you think that's a lot of pressure? I go, I have nothing to do with this. Like he just decided. And I was like, well, if you decide to do that, or you decide to get a degree in like art, he's like, mom, I love art, but I don't want a degree in art. It's like, well, you might be a chef. I just like to cook for fun, you know? And I was like, well, what if we decide? But we kind of have to, you know, prepare for that if that's what you want to do. He's like, okay, you know, we just have to, you have to work with who you have too, right? You know, so I think sometimes our kids have lofty goals and we want to support them, like in the case of, of mine, but I'm super realistic about it. And I know how important grades are. And I also know that grades are much more likely to get you merit scholarships than sports. So that is what I consistently see. So I I know how expensive college is and I don't want to say, well, let your kid be a B student. Well, they might not get merit scholarships. So finding that balance, but making sure your child has good mental health is just so important because those grades don't matter if they don't got it together. 
Yeah, it's interesting. We left a part of the state that had one of the highest rates of teen suicide in the entire state. And for me, I've always had a sense of like my kids and like where they fall. They're both bright. Let me be clear. One is an introvert and needs a lot of downtime. The other one is revved up and ready to go all the time. And it's been interesting to watch them navigate high school. Like as an example, number two kiddo yesterday came with me to cryotherapy. And not only did he want to go to cryotherapy, we were actually in the same like cryo cell at the same time, which was kind of cool. And he goes in there with just a like a waist towel on. And I go in there in a robe and take it off if I decide I want to get really cold. Oh my and God, I you're crazy to, girl. I'm not yeah. going in there. No, no, it's actually really cool. But what was interesting, I said to Liam, how do you manage being in a cryotherapy tank when it's, you know, as cold as it is for the duration of time that we're in there, which is like three minutes? It's all very safe. Let me be clear. No, I know it's safe. I just yeah, hate yeah. being cold. No, no, no. But he said, I meditate. He's like, I just go to a different place and I'm very so relaxed. Cool. And so for him, he acknowledges that's something that he needs to bring him down. So I think in many ways, I think our kids know what they need to do to manage their stress. We sometimes impose our own thoughts on them. And so I found that my kids have kind of figured out what they need to do. It usually involves exercise, but the cryo tank with him being in there, you know, I don't, I forget how cold it was yesterday for three minutes. And he was very Zen. You know, he was just meditating and, you know, I was the one that was kind of moving my legs up and down. Don't you love when they use the things that we teach them Mm -hmm. on their own with no cueing? I think that's the coolest part about having a teenager where you've been fostering it the whole time. Yeah. You know, they model the behavior. They they are listening. They're listening and watching. Yeah. Last two questions. This is for Meg, mental health. Oh, how I get upset about our healthcare system. My sister suffered from mental health problems. I lost her to suicide. How does our healthcare system treat these patients as adults, meaning that they can make their own decisions? They are not capable of doing that. How can I make a difference in a person's life when I have no say? So I think what she's talking about is, and whether listeners know this or not, unless someone is actively suicidal, Mm -hmm. wanting to harm themselves, someone else, you can't force them to do anything. And I think that's what Meg is speaking to. Yeah. When you have patients that are young adults, teenagers, et cetera. And and they're at that point, either they're expressing suicidal ideations or they have a history of attempted suicide. You know, what are ways that that families can support these loved ones in a way that's helpful and not harmful? Yeah. I mean, I think number one is not getting band-aided help, like really doing deep work. I think a lot of times when I get somebody who's, you know, at that level, which I have very complex cases. So, you know, it's not terribly unusual. We just, they've, they're getting to me and, you know, it's a lot of medication, medication, medication. It's not really deeper therapy or even really looking at a functional level. Like, you know, what's their thyroid? Like, is there infectious disease? So really getting to the bottom of it so that we can then build up, I think is a big fault in our mental health system. I've been asking every one of my patients now, I send them for, you know, full genetic variant profile because it's gotten so easy now to do. And it will tell you like what food you should eat, what nutrients you Mm -hmm. should have. Oh yeah. I have a great one that I've been using. 
And so it helps, right? It just helps them along their journey. Like, why are you asking me to get rid of this food? Well, now we have data, right? Because I'm, I'm a lover of data. So, you know, what can you do? The How lovely. And I'm sorry that this woman lost her sister because she couldn't get the proper help. I think, you know, educating people, like it is, you will never regret getting mental health help. You know, the amount of people that are not getting help, kids that, you know, it's unbelievable. So overall, 50% of kids who have a diagnosed mental health help are not getting help. So I think that's pretty scary, you know, and don't think just because they are getting help at school that you're off the hook. I recently had somebody and they were very angry with me because they were like, you just keep insisting they get therapy, but they're getting it at school. And I was like, it, you need parenting help. The school is under no obligation to give you parenting help. And you, you're struggling on how to raise this kid. And there's nothing wrong with that. We are literally not equipped to support kids who have behavioral issues or mental health issues. So, you know, educating people, volunteering in places where you can help get the message out, because again, people don't know what the long-term implications are. And a lot of times they say, well, I did this medication or I went to therapy every other week for six months or whatever it was, but did it really get to the root cause? Did you really get to this place where this behavior or issue is manageable? Because sometimes they just don't understand that there are other things in the world to support mental health. Uh, Thank you for that. I think it's really important that, you know, many years ago I worked at a hospital that was across the street from Shepherd Pratt. So one of the leading psychiatric institutions at that time, and we did a lot of the intake and people would come through. And it was so clear to me, even 25 years ago, how poorly equipped allopathic medicine is. And at that time, we still had psychiatrists that would come through and see patients in the ER. And from what I understand now, it's like, that's just, it's really hard to get that support and mental health and physical health go hand in hand. It's not one is superior to the other. Last question. I just want to wrap up with that article that you had sent me talking about the impact of the pandemic on teenagers, young adults brains. And there was a professor at university of Washington who noticed looking at all of these changes on scans in adolescent brains during the pandemic that there was this abnormal and premature thinning of the brain's cortical surface, the outer layer of the brain, it, you normally thins with aging. So that's, that's normal, right. but it's abnormal to be so thin among teenagers. This is indicative of high levels of chronic stress and trauma, and it was more prominent in female adolescents than males. And so really interesting to me that maybe we don't understand fully as parents. We assume that you know, we're three years out, things are better. And I think it just really speaks to the fact that we still have to be aware that our kids' brains are still developing. You know, the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed until they're 25, which means Mm -hmm. they sometimes make knucklehead decisions. My poor kids know this because I'll (laughs) say to them, you know, you're making an amygdala decision. Your reptilian brain is overriding your prefrontal cortex. But Suzanne's last question is specific to this. What do you think is creating the most stress for current university students post-pandemic? What do you think universities need to do to improve and foster an emotionally healthy and supportive environment? Really great question. Not an easy answer. Well, I do feel like there's an easy answer. I feel that there's no stress tolerance anymore. I mean, with kids and adults, like we don't understand, like, you know, we, again, that whole idea of bubble wrapping, right? That 
we're not letting our kids experience failure, then problem solve on their own. We're a lot of rescuing of parents, you know, of kids, you know, and when kids are getting to college, they don't know how to do a lot without so much intervention, right? And, you know, kids are getting on airplanes and going across the you know, United States. And, you know, I recently had a friend of mine send her child with unresolved mental health issues, even though had a lot of support. And she was like, what should I do, Roseanne? And I was like, you know, you have these two options, honey. You're either going to say he's going to take a whole year and you're going to do some of these things that you've been sort of trying to do while he's in school and give him a gap year, or you're going to put all these beautiful interventions you have in place and let him go to school. And he is struggling. And she couldn't have done a better job with what she did in terms of putting interventions in school. But Ultimately, in the end, he wasn't okay to go away. And, you know, when you're thinking about your kid going to school, you're thinking about the comforter. You're Mm -hmm. thinking about their meal plan. You're thinking about all those things. I'm not saying they're not exciting and important, but you have to say to yourself, you know, does my child, you know, know how to, when I went to college, my mother set me straight. She was like, people are going to put drugs in your stuff, you know, Guys, my mother famously used to say, guys want to clean your pipes. That's what she would say, right? (laughs) But she taught me like some street smarts, like, Mm -hmm. and boy, did it serve me, unbelievably serve me. She didn't sugarcoat things. And, you know, it's 1980s parenting, right? It's not 2023 parenting. We always have to change with what we're doing. So think about, does your child know how to cope with stress? Right. And I'm not just talking about academic stress. What about a friendship breakup or a betrayal? Like, do you have good communication with your child before they go to school? Are they going to ask for help from you? I mean, a lot of times kids, I had somebody, you know, go through a whole many times I've had somebody, but this year in particular, where I had somebody go through a whole year of school and just lie about going to class the grades, everything, because they had severe OCD and were too embarrassed to tell their parents about it, right? So the real answer is good coping skills, giving them plenty of practice opportunities before they go there. And, you know, what's college's responsibilities for student mental health? I mean, I think colleges, they do a pretty decent job. They have student mental health centers? Can they do more events for speaking? Can they do more events for stress management? Absolutely. And you can call me because I do them. But (laughs) we could do more of that. They're in a place where they're learning. And so they're more open to these ideas. So having speakers come do more interactive things, I think are important. And colleges want to retain students too. They want to see their kids be healthy and graduate well. And there's a lot of pressure, you know? And I think also to educate your students about drug usage, especially when marijuana and uh, mushrooms and things like that are almost like no big deal. I can't even tell you how many times I've had people have psychotic episodes from both of those. So I'm always like, kids, stick to clean liquor, you know, have a buddy when you're drinking, cover your cup, you know what I mean? As my mother would say. So educate them, don't assume, never shame your kids, you know, try to really be there and relatable and, you know, let them fail a little bit before. I mean, it's really important to let your kids fail. I can't tell you how much it helps you develop grit. 
Yeah, no, I can't agree more. And, and we just published a podcast with Dr. Yi talking, he's an addiction and holistic psychiatrist. And he was talking about, this is not the pot from the 1970s. No, it it's not so much more potent that it is a gateway drug that it does developmentally impact young brains quite significantly. We talked a lot about fentanyl and how that's working its way into so many different things. I really have to echo a lot of your concerns. Now, one thing we didn't talk much about today, but we did get a couple questions around our supplements. I know that you're an advocate of lifestyle first. And so what supplements as a clinical psychologist, do you feel like most of your patients benefit from in terms of supporting mental health? Because I know that you have a new product that's out that I want to make sure we highlight because I think everyone needs more magnesium yeah. in their lives. <laughs> Well, my company is called Neurotastic and I developed a magnesium because I do believe it is the number one nutrient we need for children's brains, but all brains. And I put in the most bioavailable forms of magnesium to that really go in and start supporting the brain immediately. So magnesium is a non-negotiable for me, as well as vitamin D. I think and the two, the combination is pretty incredible. And then when I really kind of look out, you know, what are the top things kids are affected with? So almost 10% of the U.S. population has ADHD, 9.5% have anxiety. I think that's a low ball estimate, by the way, that's the CDC and it's before the pandemic. And then depression is, it says it's only about 5%, but 15% of 13 to 17 year olds have depression. And so when I think about what do people need, right, it's a lot of focus, it's a lot of anxiety, and there's also behavioral issues in there too, about almost 10% have a behavioral issue. So what are other things that really help? So I am a big fan of inositol in terms of calming the nervous system, really, really helping to regulate it. It's easy to use. I mean, Cynthia's got the powder, you can just pop it in. You can even mix it with magnesium, get throw it in a smoothie. I mean, it's just easy, right? And it also really can help you. Both of those can help lower those stress levels for sleep, which I think most of our teens are just not getting good quality sleep and they're shortchanging their sleep to do their homework. Don't you yeah, agree? I totally agree. And in fact, yeah. my, my youngest who has heavy school workload, he takes magnesium dutifully and inositol every night because he said it helps his brain shut off yep, in see? a good way. In a good way. I also think a lot of kids of all ages are poor eaters and low zinc is associated with restrictive eating and poor eating. Um, so zinc is great. You always take it with food because if your kid doesn't, they're going to get nauseous and they'll refuse to take it. So I think zinc is that and a really good probiotic, a broad spectrum probiotic. Sometimes, I mean, like my autistics, I put them on a good probiotic, bam, they'll call me. They'll be like, this probiotic's doing something, you know, <laughs> like not even just pooping, but just helping them be more regulated and alert because stress lowers your good bacteria in your gut and we need it for neurotransmitters. strain that you use with your autistic patients? Um, you know, I love... Designs. I like two brands. I like Designs for Health, that Pro Med Bio. That's like there's a hundred billion. Yep. I think I said it wrong. And Claire Labs with a K yep. makes some really good ones. That's refrigerated. Those tend to be what I feel like are good broad spectrum 
good in general. You know, a lot of my people get poop tests so we can see what is going on. I don't think you need a poop test. I think you just get yourself a good broad spectrum. I am working on a probiotic for the brain and to help mental health, but there are some good ones on the market for sure. Is there for you? Do you like, do you have certain brands that you like? Yeah. I mean, I definitely like the ProBioMed, uh, yeah. the 50 or the 100. Mm-hmm. I do like Megaspore, so a spore-based. So there's soil-based and spore-based. Yeah. Megaspore is great unless you are prone to constipation and then it might make you more constipated, which is a whole separate issue. And then, you know, I do like Clara Labs and it really depends because for me, it's always like, what do you need? What do you and need? So are you struggling yeah. with detox? Right. Are you struggling with this? Right. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. yeah. But, but I think even before I think about formal probiotics, which there's absolutely a place for them, I'm always thinking about probiotic rich foods because those are equally important. So fermented veggies, I can usually get everyone to do those. Absolutely. You know, yogurt, you know, like a high quality yogurt, those are certainly helpful. If people tolerate dairy like kefir, things like that, I think can be very helpful because most of us need more beneficial bacteria. Totally. Microbiome. So I do think those are all really super helpful. Well, let my listeners know how to connect with you to your blogs, to your amazing podcast, to get your Magtastic, which is it magnesium L3 and A? Yes. Yep. It has L3 and A and it has glycinate and it is really just designed to get right into the brain. And for people that don't know L3 and A, which most people don't because it's not in a lot of magnesiums because it's really expensive. So uh, it goes only form that goes right into the crosses the blood brain barrier. So you're really getting like a direct hit right in your brain. Um, And I made it ridiculously tasty, tastes like lemonade. It's not called lemonade because nobody wanted it to be called lemonade. So we call it berry calm because it's a berry lemonade. And every one of our kids that has have either bought it or tried it, all the feedback has been they like it. So that was really important to me. So it is for adults too. So we made it where it's a powder and you can, it has a scooper that's designed for three different types of doses for kids four and up. So you can find me everywhere at drrosanne.com. So D-R-R-O-S-E-A-N-N.com. Awesome. Well, always a pleasure to connect with you, my friend. This is our third podcast together and probably our best yet. Yeah. Well, I always love this podcast. You're on my listening roster and I listen to podcasts every day. And today's a Sunday and I listen to podcasts even on Sunday. So thank you. And, you know, just to leave off to all the parents that are here, you're doing a great job. You are doing the best you can and you don't know what you don't know until you know. So if something resonated today, you know, please leave a review for Cynthia, go and get help, take action of some kind because, you know, We always think one day, but as I always say, today's got to be day one. And you can't invest more in your child's mental health. And sometimes it feels really scary, but when you get the right guidance, wow, it can really turn things around quick. Absolutely. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 